one murder, two convictions, and a man's battle to clear his name. Rachel Weiner. Lamont McCoy had been in prison for five years when he reached out to the police. I'm not trying to be a nuisance, he wrote in his 1995 letter to a Fayetteville, North Carolina, officer. But please help me out of this mess. For years earlier, McCoy had been convicted of murdering Myron Haley in a drug deal gone bad. McCoy, 18 years old at the time of his arrest, said he had heard rumors at the time that a man named William Rat Rat Tally was truly responsible. Now McCoy named 10 people he thought might say as much to law enforcement. Police didn't need McCoy's help. As part of a federal task force investigating Fayetteville's court boys gang, the officer had already heard four cooperators named Tally as the shooter. And months before McCoy sent his letter, a federal prosecutor had stood up in court and told a jury in Tally's drug trial that, even though he wasn't charged with Haley's killing, Tally shot him dead. But despite the prosecutor's declaration and new evidence McCoy and his attorneys presented, including that the sole eyewitness who testified at trial was unreliable and that a detective on his case was later convicted of taking bribes from drug dealers, he cannot clear his name. Standing in McCoy's way is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, a 1996 law that imposed steep legal barriers on those seeking to overturn what they believe were wrongful convictions. The law, supported by Republicans and Democrats wanting to appear tough on crime, says a person can only appeal to federal courts once, has only a year to do it, and those courts must defer to state court findings. After the law's passage, successful petitions declined dramatically. There is a way around the limits, new evidence of actual innocence. But McCoy's case shows how even when new evidence emerges, federal courts are extremely reluctant to overturn state convictions. The statute is kind of designed to put prisoners in crazy catch-22s, and the Supreme Court has read it very expansively, said Noam Biale, a criminal defense lawyer who specializes in such appeals. While fighting his conviction and meeting repeated rejection, McCoy was released on parole after 27 years in prison. But he is still hobbled by being labeled a convicted murderer and still fighting to prove he is not one. McCoy's attorneys have now filed a long-shot appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, trying to keep alive a fight he started decades ago in his note to the officer. Please don't cover this up, McCoy's 1995 letter said. You know rat kill that man I'm in prison for. So please hear me out. Haley had the day off on January 25, 1990. The 30-year-old had a new job and a two-year-old addiction to crack cocaine. His wife was trying to keep him from spending his whole paycheck on drugs. After they argued at his mother's house, Haley took off in his wife's car. The next morning, her blue Honda Accord was found crashed off the side of the road in Fayetteville, 25 miles from the small town where the Haleys lived. Myron was slumped behind the wheel, with a bullet hole straight through the driver's seat and his chest. 2.357 caliber bullets were inside the car. He was last seen at 8.55 p.m. the night before, returning clothes to a store 45 minutes from Fayetteville. Based on tire tracks where the car went off the road, police assumed Haley was traveling east when he hit a tree and the car tumbled down an embankment. Police began scouring the Haymount Hill neighborhood, where a gang shooting earlier on January 25 had knocked out the power. 
but as they canvassed the city, identifications of Haley's killer were vague and contradictory until February, when Bobby Lee Williams, also known as Strawberry, told police McCoy had killed Haley in a drug dispute. According to the police file, Williams relayed that McCoy tried to sell Haley powdered aspirin as crack cocaine, then Williams intervened and forced the dealer to hand over the real drugs. Williams said he then saw McCoy chase as Haley drove away, firing a gun twice. Before Williams, McCoy had only been named as one of many potential witnesses to Haley's killing. McCoy was in the streets, he later acknowledged. After his father died working at the commissary at Fort Bragg, McCoy started noticing other kids in the neighborhood with rolls of cash and new clothes. He turned from dreams of following his father into the military to dealing drugs. Williams had also told investigators McCoy's friends were involved in the shooting, prompting police to round them up. One, 16-year-old Charmaine Evans, implicated McCoy. But those accounts quickly became problematic. Evans was handcuffed to a chair for hours before naming McCoy, according to the police record. Days later, before he was supposed to testify in court, Evans told his lawyer he had lied. I didn't know nothing about it, he said in a recorded conversation with his attorney included in the court record. They said they were going to keep me down there in jail if I wouldn't tell them nothing. Evans did stick to one part of his story, that McCoy carried a .22 caliber gun, not a .357 like the rounds shot at Haley. That information did not make it into the police record of the interview. Court records show Williams, who at the time was on parole for armed robbery and manslaughter, appeared to make inconsistent statements in his account about the weather, Haley's clothing and whether there was a passenger in the car. The physics of Williams's story were also improbable, said Graham Gurney, McCoy's first appellate lawyer. Williams's account required both him and McCoy to catch up with a moving car by running through trees and Haley to make a series of turns while fleeing gunshots. It just did not ever make sense to me, Gurney said. But I was never able to get anything to back that up. Two other witnesses said they saw McCoy shooting at a car that night, but their timing did not line up with Williams's account and they were not called to testify at trial, according to the court record. Years later, Evans, the teen who implicated McCoy, would twice reach out to Gurney asking if he could help free McCoy. It had always been on my mind and in my heart, Evans wrote. The state had one other piece of evidence. Police officer Mike Ballard testified that in a brief conversation on the street about a month after the shooting, McCoy replied, I know it, when the officer accused him of murder. McCoy maintains he was being sarcastic. Ballard did not arrest McCoy, instead suggesting he agreed to be photographed and polygraphed. McCoy refused and was allowed to leave. In subsequent notes, Ballard said McCoy made no incriminating remarks. The judge told jurors at McCoy's trial they could take the statement as evidence which tends to show that the defendant has admitted the facts relating to the crime charged in this case. After four days of testimony and five hours of deliberation, on May 2, 1991 the jury came back unanimous, guilty of first-degree murder. For years later, members of a local Fayetteville gang known as the Court Boys went to trial in federal court. Facing rising violence, Fayetteville police had teamed up with federal agents to take down the gang, which operated out of a housing complex called Groveview Terrace.
Ten men pleaded guilty in federal court. Three went to trial in 1995, including Tally, the one known as Rat Rat. Tally was accused only of selling crack for the gang while armed. But prosecutors told jurors he was not just a drug dealer but a killer. Two cooperating gang members testified they saw Tally shoot at a driver who tried to rob them of drugs in the Groveview Terrace housing complex the night Haley was killed and that they saw the crashed car on an embankment the next day. In closing arguments, Assistant U.S. Attorney John Bennett held up the gun Tally was carrying when arrested and told the jury to use your common sense. It was a .357 caliber revolver, according to the court record. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you think happened to the driver of that car? Bennett asked. What happened is that William Talley shot him dead. Talley did not respond to requests for comment through his last attorney or calls to his listed phone number. A man at his last known address who identified himself as William declined to speak to a reporter and did not respond to a letter left at his door. Where is the evidence about this murder? Alexis Pierce, attorney at appeal hearing. Tally was ultimately granted a new trial because of the murder accusation and was convicted on drug charges a second time. Tally's defense attorney, Alexis Pierce, was shocked he had no warning that his drug trafficking client was going to be implicated in a homicide. I was blown out of the water, Pierce later testified at McCoy's first appeal hearing. After the closing argument, Pierce pressed the police officers involved in the case for more information about the killing his client was accused of committing. He learned that another man had been convicted in state court in the killing the prosecutor accused Tally of committing, information useful for his client. I kept saying, where is the evidence about this murder? Pierce testified. One officer gave me the name Lamont McCoy. Pierce decided he also had an ethical responsibility to tell McCoy about Tally, if there is an innocent man in jail, I wanted him to be released. He called McCoy's trial attorney, who relayed the information to McCoy in prison. Unable to pay the lawyer a second time, McCoy filed a handwritten appeal from behind bars. Gurney was appointed to argue the case in state court for McCoy. He subpoenaed the leader of the court boys, who didn't show up to court. Gurney said he was working on getting Williams, a.k.a. Strawberry, to recant his identification of McCoy when the witness died. Gurney also struggled to get records from state or federal prosecutors. But the night before the hearing, he was handed an internal FBI memorandum reporting that evidence has been developed which indicates that Tally was involved in the murder of Myron Craig Haley. He presented that in court, along with testimony from Pierce and records of the testimony from Tally's trial. The appeal was still dismissed. The Tally witnesses could have confused two similar killings, the judge said in his ruling, noting that they described the attack as occurring east of the crash site while the tire tracks from the scene led west. Bennett, the federal prosecutor who had implicated Tally in the killing, also reversed course. He had written to the state prosecutor. I do not believe that this information provides enough evidence to charge Tally, sick, with the murder, nor does it provide enough evidence to exonerate Lamont McCoy. Reached by phone recently, Bennett said he did not remember the details of either case. 
Your guess is good as mine at this point as to why he was equivocal about Tally's guilt with state prosecutors, he said. But, he added, any decisions about that case were theirs to make and not mine. In 2001, McCoy tried again, connecting from prison to Duke Law's Innocence Project. First, the volunteers set about proving that the court boys could not have described a different killing. Over the next decade, Duke Law students confirmed that Haley was the only man found shot inside a crashed automobile in Fayetteville between 1986 and 1995. The Duke students uncovered additional evidence suggesting McCoy was innocent. Two more court boys gave statements saying Tally committed the killing, with one naming Haley as the victim. Williams's ex-fiancée signed a declaration that before dying, her partner had planned to admit he falsely implicated McCoy for a $1,000 reward. She could not be reached for comment. The students learned one of the two investigators on McCoy's case, who had been undercover in Groveview Terrace, had since been convicted of taking bribes to drop drug cases. And they found an incident report showing several police officers responding to the earlier gang shooting were present at the exact time and place that Williams claimed McCoy shot Haley, which McCoy's lawyers argued would have made it impossible for the killing to go undetected by law enforcement. But North Carolina state courts again dismissed his appeal, saying that it came too late and that McCoy should have found the new evidence before his trial. The Duke team went to federal court. They hired a mechanical engineer who testified that the tire tracks from the crash site were misinterpreted and Haley could easily have been coming west from Groveview Terrace. And then, buried in the thousands of documents turned over by the state, they found two pieces of paper, typed records of the first tips to police that came in after Haley's death. One was from a woman who said Rat Rat did the shooting and identified a witness. The second said an intoxicated caller named the person he said was responsible. Scrawled on the report was Rat Rat from Brovuter. In late 2019, a federal judge in North Carolina heard McCoy's case. In the courtroom was Myron Haley Jr., who was three years old when his father was killed. Next to him was his fiancée, who gasped when photos of the crime scene were shown. The dead man in the car looked just like her future husband. In Haley Jr.'s one clear memory of his father, Haley Sr. is leaving through the back door, saying I'll be back. Even that could be imagined, he knows. And he could be wrong about who killed his father. But he has always understood McCoy to be the killer, and the hearing did not change his mind. In the elevator outside the courtroom, the two men found themselves alone together. Haley Jr. recalled it as the strangest silence of his life. Look man, I didn't kill your dad, McCoy eventually said. He didn't believe it. Neither did the court. As U.S. Appeals Court Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III put it at oral arguments in McCoy's case, there are very few cases that there's not some after-discovered evidence. It's always brought up. And I thought that, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, was passed to shut off these kinds of claims because they just go on and on. It's no way to operate a system that's concerned with the truth. In December, the Fourth Circuit issued an unpublished opinion that the evidence was not conclusive enough to meet the very demanding burden of actual innocence. Jamie Lau, 
a professor at Duke Law who argued McCoy's case, said the appellate court is supposed to look at the evidence with fresh eyes but instead relied heavily on the state court rulings that were based on incomplete evidence. It's no way to operate a system that's concerned with the truth, he said. In prison, McCoy missed the death of an aunt who had championed his case for years. McCoy's wife was pregnant with their son when he was arrested, he asked for a divorce so she could move on without him. For 27 years he slept on hard cots in long halls, avoided knife fights and saw his family once a month at most. In 2017, with help from Duke, his parole was granted. He went first to Golden Corral, for the first meal where he was able to have seconds in nearly three decades. Then to the graveyard to visit the relatives who died while he was behind bars. And then to see his mother, who survived. He wants to become a commercial truck driver, see the country, make good money. But several employers rejected him because of his record, he is back at the same scrapyard that employed him as a prisoner on work release. Tally was released from prison two years after McCoy, in 2019. They passed each other on the street in Fayetteville once, according to McCoy. Neither man said anything. Story editing by LYNH Bui. Photo editing by Mark Miller. Copy editing by Mina Hack. Design by J.C. Reed. Alice Kreitz, Razan Nakloi, and Lee Toss contributed to this report.